So the Higginbotham's have returned. Yeah, we'll take that. Definitely a phrase. Good to have you back. One time, whole time. I still think you had a film fill out of Yeah, we did. We did excommunicate you. Like that. Much more rigorous uh, membership process. <laughs> 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 All right, grab your Bible. And I guess pop quiz. We are studying what book? Hebrews. I was going to be very sad if y'all got that wrong. Because um, we are like 12 weeks in. Maybe not. I don't know. We're in it for a ways. And we are going to be in chapter 8. So this was one of those scenarios where I either had to go through half of chapter 9 or break the thought down into smaller pieces. So we went with the smaller pieces route. So we are gonna do only six verses tonight. So after the last two, I can imagine this may seem small because we did a chapter and a half and then a whole chapter almost a week before that. So we are gonna dive into not really a new topic, but kind of a new or a summary sort of statement about this, this topic. So let's just recap what's going on in Hebrews so far, and uh, we'll get our brains in the right spot, and then we can make sense of what's going on in chapter 8. So Hebrews is written to what group of people? So Christian Jews experiencing what problem? Persecution from non-Christian Jews. So this whole problem is a Jewish discussion. We have Jews who do not believe in the Messiah, Versus Jews who do believe in the Messiah. We would call them Christians. In fact, if this letter is early enough, uh, you, all Christians are really Jews. A, maybe a correct Jew, a perfect kind of Jew. Hey guys, settle it down some. Too loud. All I can hear is uh, this rock, paper, scissors game. Facts. Okay. <laughs> Over there, man. <laughs> Sorry, that was. What is your own kid's voice? You can't tune it out, you know. It's like I'm trained to hear it, I guess. All right, here we go. Where was I? I'll get back in this eventually. We'll be fine. Jewish Christians persecuting non-Jewish Christians. What's the goal of the persecution? Are to walk away from Christ towards Judaism without Jesus. Follow. So, in a sense going back to the Old Testament. That's not quite what's happening, but in a sense, that's the argument. You need to walk away from Christ, and you need to come back to Moses. So this persecution causing that to happen. So Hebrews is written designed to argue to these Christian Jews that that is a dumb idea theologically, religiously, practically, in any sense whatsoever, leaving Christ and going back to Moses is a downgrade. And so the basic summary of the argument has been what? We've said the argue, the reason you shouldn't go to Moses instead of Jesus is because Jesus is better. 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 Exactly. Now we're going to see that word better show up a couple times in the passage tonight. Uh, so we're not just making up the word better. It actually literally gets used in the, in the, the, the English language here in this translation. But he's going to kind of climax that argument. So let's just walk through some of the basic stages he made in the argument. So he started off by saying Jesus was better than angels. angels. And he's received a better name now 
that angels have. And of course, that's a reference to his incarnation. And then he got a new name, a new glory, only in the incarnation, though, because God doesn't change. But as a human being, he's got this new name that is now superior to that of the angels. And what was the new name? Do you remember? It's funny because it's not really new. It's only new in one sense. Son, son. I would take air as well. Son is the idea. So he's become the incarnate son of God. And so now we have this Christ. But not only is he better than angels, he's better than the thing the angels gave in the Old Testament. And what was that thing? The law. So Moses, the Jewish belief was that Moses received this. Now we would say from the angel of the Lord, right, in the Old Testament. In Jewish thought in the first century, they would say then that God delivered the law through the angels. So the reason he started there with his argument, if Jesus is greater than the angels, well, he's already greater than what then? The message that they gave. He's greater than the message they gave. But we're going to talk about that message. What biblical character represents the old covenant? Moses. Jesus is then better than Moses. We have a comparison that compares the ministry of Moses ultimately to, and that's actually what we're getting into the meat of over the next few chapters, the ministry of Christ. Now Moses, was he considered a faithful servant of God? Even in Hebrews, is it considering him a faithful? Absolutely, very faithful. But what did he not do? He got him out of Egypt, but he didn't take a soul to the promised land. Didn't get any of them there. And then Jesus is going to be a better servant in the house because he's not a servant. He's what? He's the heir. He's the son, which means he's the owner. He is the God that built the house. It's his house. He's going to do a better job. So Moses couldn't get him to the Sabbath rest. But presumably, what's Jesus going to be able to do? Bring him all the way to the Sabbath rest, which is the... At this point, we'll just say heaven. We'll be more specific in a few minutes. But that's the idea. So Jesus, unlike Moses, is going to be a faithful priest in that he accomplishes his mission. Moses only kind of accomplished his mission. He got him out of Egypt, but not all the way home. Jesus is going to save, and we got this last week in chapter 7, verse uh, 25. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Point being, he doesn't only get you out of Egypt, he's going to get you up to the promised land. The idea is heaven, eternal life. Now, in that conversation, we have to deal with the priesthood of the Old Covenant. And then Jesus is going to be a better priest than the Old Covenant priests. Now, the Old Covenant priests became a priest by nature of what? Their birth. They had to be born into it. Not just into Levi... But they had to be born into what? Aaron. Within Levi, they had to be Aaron's descendants. Is Jesus a qualified Levitical priest? No. No, he doesn't qualify. Why? He's from Judah. He's not, only not is he from Aaron, he's not even from the parent tribe, Levi. He's from Judah. But he becomes a priest according to a different order. That's what we spent all the last week talking about. What order is that? Melchizedek. Now, we went into some detail about who he is, or in a lot of ways, who he wasn't. 
um, in the Old Testament. But either way, in the resurrection, Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what did Levi have to do with Melchizedek in the argument? Do you remember? Well, technically, where was Levi when Melchizedek shows up in Scripture? He's not born yet. Because who is Melchizedek talking to? Abraham. And what is Abraham to Levi? Do you know? Great. I think it's one great, isn't it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Is it great, great? That's great. Abraham and Isaac is son, and grandson is great grandson. I think it's just great. It doesn't matter. He's, he's a close relative, but he's not born yet. So the argument was that when Abraham gave tithe to Melchizedek, Abraham's greater than Levi, because Levi was still in his loins. So Levi is submissive to Melchizedek, and if Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek in the same order, what is the whole Levitical code compared to the priesthood of Christ. It's less than All right, it's, He's got a better priesthood. So that's where the argument ended. Now we're going to get in and kind of give some summary statements about this priesthood, and this is Hebrews 8, diving into verse 1. It says, Now the point, and what we are saying is this. Don't you love it when a Bible book actually has that expression? Paul says that all the time, but he doesn't mean it. He's like, therefore, finally, halfway through the book, you know. But at least here in Hebrews, he's literally speaking the truth here. This is the point. This is where it all came. We have such a high priest. Now, in English, that expression, such a high priest, is usually the precursor to another statement. We have somebody who's so good they can. That's not how it's worded here. The statement is, we have an awesome high priest. That's the point. The whole point of this argument is we have such a high priest. And then we're going to get some descriptions about that priest. It says, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, there's a lot of theology in that verse. To say Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God is to say several things. Number one is to say Jesus is not something, not what? dead. He is not dead. He is raised. It's also to say, where's the flesh body of Jesus Christ right now? Sitting on the throne. Right at the right hand of God the Father. That's what that expression means. And since he's sitting on that throne at the right hand of God, what is he in charge of? Everything. All things. He has sovereignty. So he's sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Not only that, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The true tent that the Lord set up. So first of all, what's a tent? And what's this tent a reference to? It's tabernacle. So simple. Does that look tentish to you? Uh, there's my tent, okay? And tent and tabernacle are synonyms. Literally the same word. And in Greek, it's in skin. You hear it? Where that comes from? So literally in what? A- animal skin. Leather. Yeah, this is 
what a tent was made of. So, so Jesus did something in the true, the true tent, not one made by hand. Well, what tent was made by hands? The tabernacle. Capital T tabernacle. Well, is there anything wrong with the capital T tabernacle? Why Moses build the tabernacle? He was commanded to build this tabernacle. It's a big deal to build this tabernacle. But the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus didn't go in the tabernacle. He didn't go that thing. Where did he go? To the true? The true, the real tabernacle. Well, was that a metaphor then in the Old Testament? Did Abraham, I mean, Moses literally have a tent that they literally went to? Or is it a metaphor? It was a little tent, wasn't it? It's literally a tent that was there. And what did the people of Israel do with it every time the cloud of glory moved when they were wandering in the wilderness? They packed up the tent. What are Levites for? Moving the tent. Moving the tent. That's what they exist to do. They move the tent. They take care of the, the stuff. The priests actually don't even move the tent. They just do the work in the tent. The Levites move the tent. The Levites move the ark. The Levites do all that stuff. They have to be dedicated for it. But that's what they are for. It's very much a true, real, tangible, literal building. But he's saying Jesus is the minister um, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We're going to come back to this stone. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, that's a clue. Who's the he in that sentence? Jesus. This is Jesus. So, if Jesus were on earth, now what does that assume in the wording of that sentence? And that he's not. Well, we know he's not. The verse, we've already been told that in this paragraph. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. And the work that he did is in some true tent, not here. Well, what's the proof he's not here? It says he would not be a priest at all. Jesus wouldn't be a priest if he was here. Doesn't that seem a little weird to say that? That somehow Jesus coming to earth would mean he wasn't a priest. Think about that for just a second. Why in the world would that make sense? Well, think about it like this. Let's say the high priest decides, I don't want to live in Jerusalem anymore. I'm going to live in Syria. I go north and live in Syria now. What would you say about his high priesthood ministry? He quit. Why, why, would, why do you know that? How do you know he quit? Just because he, he just wants to move to Syria. What's the big deal about that? What's not in Syria? The tabernacle is not in Syria. Later, the temple is not in Syria. If you're the high priest, you are restricted to a particular location because that building is in a particular location. Well, where's the location then of the true building we're talking about? It has to be in heaven. And Jesus is not on earth because where is he? He's in heaven ministering where? In the true building. This is, it gets kind of weird if you think about it. It's probably going to get weirder as we go. And then hopefully it'll make sense 
when we're done. So if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So on earth, there, at the time of the writing anyway, there was a tabernacle or a tent. And what is that? It's the temple in Jerusalem. And is Jesus a high priest in that temple? No. Not even qualified. What's he missing? Lineage of Aaron. He's not even qualified to be. So if he was here, he wouldn't be the priest. Did you ever see Jesus going to the temple and take over the priest's responsibilities? Not what he's doing. Not what he's doing. He's going to be a better priest than them. But he's got a different building. Not that building. He's got another one. So they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What does that mean? Moses built the tent like what? Like built the tent like this tent. You hear what I'm saying? Like he's showing Moses a tent. Here's the pattern of the tent. You built the tent like my tent. Well, what does that presuppose? It was already a tent. Where? It's not literally on the mountain, right? It might not even literally be a, probably not literally a tent either. But it's symbolic of a true tabernacle, not made with human hands, in the heavens. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. All right, so to make sense of this, I want to review what that old covenant are. Right, the old covenant. So you now have, you got your table. Everybody excited about a table? The tables get me excited. I love tables. Sometimes. Especially if they have food on them. Wrong kind of table. But here we go. I have no idea. Are there any more? include the basic covenants here in this discussion of the Old Testament. So before we go further, maybe we should define the word covenant. Anybody want to offer a definition of the word covenant? Agreement? That's not bad. Contract is also not bad. Kelly. So that's a good example, illustrated in Moses, I know Moses, uh, Abraham cuts the animals in half, and then God walks between the animals. In fact, the Hebrew expression is to cut a covenant, it's the bird that goes with it. But what's the idea then? So we said agreement, a binding, a pact, why would there be blood involved in making a covenant? Consequences. What's the closest thing in modern culture to a covenant? Marriage. So marriage is probably a little bit better because we don't necessarily have a written contract. But marriage is a bond 
And some short expression, usually, depending on the sources you read, is a bond in blood. The bond in blood, the expression meant, if you break the bond, there will be blood. So rewind history. You're in a marriage relationship. You get caught in adultery. What happens? There's blood. All right, let's say you, you live in the ancient world, and your leader of your clan has made a covenant with the leader of the clan next door about where the border is, and then you say, you know what, I don't care about that agreement. We're going to move the border further into his side. What happens? Blood. That's the idea. You, it's a binding agreement that there are consequences if you break. In fact, covenants always have two parties. Covenants always have conditions, meaning in a marriage, what's the condition? Now, we use the word condition a little, like, I'll break this if you. I don't mean condition in that way. What's the what's the stipulations? What's the rules? As long as you live. All right, so as long as we're together, we're exclusive. That's certainly a major aspect of it. There's always two parties. But if you think about two countries, can two countries enter into a covenant relationship with one another? This happens all the time. In fact, we a lot of the actions we do... Um, are based on existing covenants we have with other nations. Now, did you personally agree to any of the stipulations in any peace treaty covenant we have as America with another nation? Not no, right? You didn't? Um, Are you therefore excused from being obligated to obey the stipulations in that covenant? Can you decide, you know, I want to change the border between Mexico and the United States because I live on the border. I'm just going to push that border out a little bit. Do you have the right to do that? No, you don't represent a party. You're, you're obligated within a covenant. You don't have any power or authority to change, speak for anything about that covenant. Someone else represented you. In covenant language, we call that person the head. It's just a biblical term. It's a theology term, the head, is a person in a covenant who represents you. So if you think about it, I have Adam for our first Old Testament character that's in a covenant relationship. Who did Adam, and now we're talking about Eve, we'll put them together, Adam and Eve together. Who did Adam and Eve have a covenant relationship with? Well, God. So we have God, and then we have Adam. Are there stipulations about their relationship. There's one basic one that cannot be avoided. The most simplistic way to say it is what's Adam's relationship to God? Created. Created almost goes where I'm saying. What did you say, James? You have a creator and a created. So, so what does that mean, Adam's? What's Adam's requirements under this covenant relationship? Obedience. Exactly. That is the covenant stipulation. We have specific examples of this covenant in Genesis. Some specific commands that God gives Adam. Now, we all want to jump to, you know, don't eat the fruit from this tree. That's not the only stipulation, though. And it's not the first commandment. What's God tell them to do first? Be fruitful. And then do what? Multiply. And then subdue the earth. All right? He's given man a responsibility and obligations within this relationship. Now, did 
Did Adam mess up anything in that relationship? Yeah. Does that have any impact on you today? Do you ever feel like that's not fair because you didn't get the you didn't get say in that? That's not how covenants work. Adam was the representative for you in that covenant. Now we'll we'll explain that a little bit more. So we call this the Adamic. Not complicated. Adam's name and I see. Adamic covenant. Why do you think we call it the Adamic covenant? Because Adam's the human in the relationship. We could call all of them, you know, God's covenants, because he's the other party. But we'll start with that. So the stipulations under man, you could say something like obey. That's man's requirements or condition under that covenant. What's what's God's condition or stipulation or promise, you think? It's kind of implicit in that one. So, well, he, so he issues Adam's requirements, but he's holding himself to something. All right, so, oh, totally. You can write relationship in there. What else? Well, he's kind, he's kind of, how it plays out, he's maintaining judgment in it. Okay, yeah. He's going to be the executor of judgment. All right, so he's going to evaluate Adam's obedience. Well, in evaluating obedience implies that there's two outcomes. What do we call those two outcomes? One, we usually say judgment or condemnation. What's the other? Reward. So God is promising, and maybe implicit in this relationship, he's got a positive response or a negative response. This is God's side of the covenant. You see how we're working this? This is how covenants work. Really, human relationships, whether they're officially covenants or not, kind of have this built in. Let's go on past Adam. He also promised to provide for them. Mm-hmm. So they messed up. There's a, well, yeah, there's a lot of... We're going to unpack Adam a little bit more specifically in a minute because he's connected to another covenant, theologically speaking, that I want to talk about. Let's keep going for the sake of time. And, uh, wow. We're, we're not going to finish. I'll just own that right now. We'll go as far as we can. So the next one, I have Noah. Everybody knows the Noahic covenant, right? Same thing. Noah's the character. Noahic is the covenant. We call it that because it's Noah. So there's a covenant between God and Noah, and we usually emphasize the ending part of this covenant. So Noah gets off of the ark, and God makes a covenant with Noah that what? What's the what are the conditions or the promises in this scenario? I'm not going to flood the earth again. Now, sometimes this is called an unconditional covenant. And all we mean when we say that, because technically, if you really want to be proper, you can't have a covenant that's unconditional because then it wouldn't be a covenant. What we mean is that God's action on his side of this covenant isn't bearing or based on some hypothetical or potential action on our side. God didn't say, I won't flood the earth again unless... You follow what I'm saying? It's he made a promise. Here's the covenant stipulation. Here's the condition of this covenant. I'm not going to do that again. Now, in this scenario, he gave a sign of the covenant. What was the sign? That's our rainbow, by the way. That's our rainbow. Sorry. Okay, I'll get on the side there. Okay, everybody follow what we're saying. That one's kind of simple. So, man's stipulation, (laughs) there actually is a stipulation. Regarding man in the Noahic covenant, 
We just don't think about it as being part of the covenant. Man is given the freedom to do something now that I guess is assumed he didn't have the freedom to do before. Eat, well, eat flesh. And this is where we first see um, capital punishment instituted in Scripture. If you kill a human being, you have forfeited your image-bearing value and you die. Does that make sense? That, that's part of this covenant. So just examples here, old covenants. Now we get to Abraham. This is where it gets more um, specific, and we're getting closer to having some meaning within Hebrews. Abraham enters the covenant. Any guesses of what this covenant is called? <laughs> Abrahamic. Abrahamic usually, but yes, exactly. I won't bother writing that up there. You can probably figure it out. God makes a set of promises. We call them conditions call them stipulations. They're really in covenant lingo. These are all synonyms. Um, what are these promises that God makes to Abraham? Air. This is a big deal. Air. You get an air. What else? Land. Land. Specific land. What's specific? Um, nation. And then we could put one more, but it actually belongs on the other side. That he would be a blessing. But actually that means that one technically belongs under man's side. That's Adam's condition. That's what he's supposed to be because of this. It really goes on both sides. But that's not an uncommon theme. So, now does Abraham have to do anything else within this covenant? Sorry, it's not with God. Oh, okay. So, let me obey. just cut to the chase. He has to obey. Ooh, which you said it. He has to actually have faith in this. God makes a really big deal about that. And then there's one more thing he has to do. It's pretty, pretty fundamental to Judaism. Circumcision. I have no idea. Those letters are in it, so we'll, we'll go with it. Literally, I, I'm just going to put cut around. That's what it means. Circumference, cut around. There we go. Right, so that's the Abrahamic covenant. This is where we see the word promises start to play prominently within Judaism. That's a key word for them because this covenant is chiefly built around God making specific promises to Abraham. Now, has God faithful to those promises? Always. Yeah. We see all three of those happen in some form, to some degree, within the Old Testament. And then, very precisely, we see the blessing happen in the New Testament in the form of Jesus being born, exactly. Or Jesus doing the crucifixion. Alright, so now, who do you think's next? The one I gave the most space for. Oh, David's last. David's a good one. Next is Moses. We're going to go to Moses. We could get more specific, but we, you know, I want to hit Moses. We want the Jacobitic. Jacobic. Um, so what do you think we call the covenant with Moses? Zay. Except it's not Mosic. So this one's actually a little bit different. But uh, same idea, still an IC. Mosaic covenant. 
All right, what are the stipulations in this covenant? Obey. Still, still, consistent theme, obey. That is required. But we're more precise when we say obey in the Mosaic Covenant. We have a law, a whole system of how to behave as part of this covenant. Circumcision is carried through. I'm going to call that the sign. The sign of the covenant carries through, since I can't spell circumcision. And what else would you put in there? Faith. Faith. Faith is still a key element. Sacrifice. And maybe within that I'll put, I'll just put Levi. I mean the Levitical priesthood. Now what about God? Is there any promises on this side? Now look at the lingo we just used. What do we call that? Promised. Promised. Becomes a foundational word for them after Mo I mean after Abraham. So promised land. Really, it's a carryover of that exact promise. Now what else does God promise in this covenant? Blessing and curse. Blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. If you obey this law, I'll bless you. If you don't obey this law, I'll curse you. Is that what some people were saying, Mother? They would be his people and he would be their God. Right. There's a sense in which the promise here is the covenant relationship itself. I'll be your God. You will get to be my people. Anything else? They also, they were to represent God to the Gentiles around them too at this point, right? Which goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. They're supposed to be the blessing. To the world. To the world. They're supposed to be the light on the hill. They're not. They end up being very nationalistic and inward focused among a billion other sins. But uh, that's one of their problems. Okay, now which, out of all the covenants so far, which one is the book of Hebrews emphasizing? Okay. This one, Mosaic Covenant. There's a reason, and we'll hopefully that will be clear as we go. Now one more. After Moses. Davidic. Very good. Again, just David with an IC. And what did God promise David? The throne an heir on that throne. One of his children will sit on that throne for how long? Ever. Forever. That's the basics of that promise. So really on the David side, we would say rule, man side, and on the God side, we would say provide or um, sustain the heir. All right, so that's kind of... A Hebrew who's reading this letter knows all of this. This is basic biblical backgrounds for them. This is me getting a bunch of, you know, church choir level Christians. Yeah, I just made up a lot. Church choir level Christians. We don't have a church choir, so we don't have any church choir level Christians <laughs> at the church. But I'm talking to them about John 3.16. 
that's hopefully a verse they know. This is stuff the Hebrew people reading this book, they know. So now let's theologically think about how the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to that temple. And we've got to do something very interesting. So number one, Jesus administered the final sacrifice in the heavenly temple. That's That was the key word we got. Remember, it's, it's the true, it's heavenly, it's not made by hands. There's something in heaven that was not on earth during any of those covenants that Jesus accomplished, therefore that could never have been done here because the real thing wasn't here. Well, what I'm saying, that, that's what the author said. So, doesn't matter if we look at Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, there's something that Jesus fulfills in heaven that they never had on the table because it wasn't here. He's, he's doing this and what we're going to call here the heavenly temple or heavenly tabernacle. All right, next, and we're going to do these three and then put it together under the three covenants next. So I'm, I'm working quick because we're going to work slow in a second. Jesus is ever present in the heavenly places to be our high priest. So quick side note. Paul didn't have some of the lingo we have now. And so um, we're going to, it's going to sound weird. Because Paul doesn't use this lingo, so it's going to sound weird to hear it in a religious setting. But this lingo kind of works for what Paul meant. So we think of, here's earth. Where's heaven? Okay, somebody went all around us because we're very, we're, we're not flat earthers, okay? But in their worldview, though, and, and most of us when we talk about heaven, we do have a general direction in mind. We think of Right? And if, if we're more classy, a little more sophisticated, we would say just out. Right? It's, it's, it's out there somewhere. And if we think about how Paul used the word heaven, and he said he went to the third heaven. We talked about that before. Remember how, the, how they thought about the world? So here's the land. Here's a palm tree. Here's a bird. All those things are in the air. They're in the heavens. Which heaven? First time. All right, but then you go further up. All right, technically the clouds. Then we got things like. <laughs> Heavenly bodies. What heaven is this? Second. But then there's something else. What's the next? Well, stars. Sorry. Stars go here. Dark hole. <laughs> Then in their worldview, you had the third heaven. What was the third heaven to them? This is God's heavenly domain. So visually, we think got to go through one to get to two, and then you can go to three. We see this visually done in Scripture. When Jesus ascends and he literally goes to heaven, how does he do it? He goes up through the clouds, but then what happens when he gets to the clouds? Technically, he kind of skips the second heaven and goes straight to the third. Follow what I'm saying? What Elijah do in the Old Testament? He got caught up. And now, we don't know if he went through the second to get to the third or not. But does Jesus have to go through one and two to get here? No. What's really happening? He's in the quantum realm. 
You have to watch more. Okay. No, no use for you. <laughs> Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus, and really any of the heavenly beings, could show up at any point, at any level. They don't have to go through two and through one to get here. What do they do? They just be here. Jesus does this a lot after the resurrection, doesn't he? There's a locked door. What's he do? He just shows up on the other side. He's there. He can just, to use more modern lingo, he can materialize or dematerialize. Now we're using modern lingo. I know that's more, not really overthinking. But it's kind of like, not that heaven is out there, so much that maybe heaven's more like a different dimension that he can enter in and out of at any point. So, where is Jesus exactly? God, wherever you want to be. <laughs> well, that's a great answer. That, that really is a good answer. So, from a deity standpoint, where is he? He's everywhere. And from a physical incarnation standpoint, I'll go with Jim's answer. He's wherever he wants to be. He manifests locally. He could be here. And then can he go to Israel instantaneously? Yeah, he didn't have to pass through physical space to get there. That's the point. Heaven, in a biblical lingo, is still part of creation, but it's kind of in a different realm. Maybe realm's a good word. Can we use that? It's in a different sphere, in a different system, in a different plane different it's not in the universe at all it's behind the universe i know we're getting away i'm just trying to use some analogy that works for you all of these are just analogies so when we say jesus is in heaven we're also saying jesus is everywhere you hear what i'm saying like there's this he can he can be everywhere he's available because of that all right one more statement and go six minutes We'll see what happens. Hmm. We're going to at least try to get through the three covenants. Poorly. Okay. The covenant that Christ administers is the true covenant. So sorry, true covenant that all previous covenants, with an S, pointed towards or revealed. Pointed towards or revealed. Now, to make sense of that, here's how we're going to think about it in five minutes. Before creation began, before the foundation of the world, we get expressions like this in Scripture, right? Before the foundation of the world, does anything happen at all? Covenant between God and Jesus. So Ted, go straight to it. Save five for a minute, so we're good. All right. So there's actually this statement in Titus um, that's awesome. We won't go there, but it says, basically, before the ages began, God promised. To who? To himself. How could God promise to himself? He's three. He's three. There's, we call that an inter-Trinitarian agreement. In this case, we're going to call it the covenant of... Redemption. And this is God's plan before anything started to work out salvation in us. 
and includes a lot of stuff in that plan. This is called the counsel of his will. And Paul, before the creation of the universe, God has a plan. It's very important to know because Jesus on the cross is not a plan B. It's a very important part of that original covenant of redemption. So the covenant's between who? But there's technically three parties within this covenant. And what do you think the promises and stipulations are? The Son will incarnate. Die on the cross. You see what I'm... The stipulations are what we call history. What we could call the future. But we just call it the plan. This is what God is doing. The story of salvation, or often we call it the story of redemption. That's the plan in the covenant. So God makes this covenant with himself to execute this plan. So far, has he been executing this plan? Yes. Is he going to continue to execute this plan? Yes. He's made a promise. Before the ages began, he made a promise to execute this plan. This plan will be executed. Now, theologically, from that point forward, we can divide all covenants in Scripture into two categories. And it is not Old Testament, New Testament. A lot of people assume that. That's not what we mean. It's actually next. So that's covenant number one. Covenant number two is what oftentimes is called the covenant of works. Sometimes it's called the Adamic covenant and say that it's really just another way to talk about Adam's relationship with God. So let's think about that. In Adam's relationship with God, his standing before God was based on what? Obedience. Obedience. Strictly obedience. He disobeyed, and what happened? He got kicked out of the garden. There were consequences. He did not get to enjoy God's presence anymore. He had to leave the garden. But did everything happen to him that that original covenant of works indicated would happen if he disobeyed God? What was claimed? If you disobey God... If you eat from that fruit, you will surely die. That's not what happens. Death does come in. He does eventually die. But something else happens. God doesn't fully execute that part because there's more to his plan. There's another covenant in play. What do you think it's called? Covenant of grace. So, chronologically, when it's the government covenant of grace start working out the moment Adam sinned and didn't die the covenant of grace has been slowly coming now did Adam you think know all the details about the covenant of grace not at all was that part of God's plan that there would be a covenant of grace yes this is part of the covenant of redemption so if you think about the timeline say that's Adam's sin. It was covenant of works only up to that point. Here's eternity. This is when everything's final and complete the way it's going to be. Somewhere along this path there's something the New Testament calls the fullness of time. Jesus comes born under the law to redeem covenant of redemption, those under the law. And from this point forward we are actively living under the covenant of grace. But 
what about Adam and his line and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David? Are any of those guys living under the covenant of grace? Every single one of them that got saved. Nobody ever got saved through the covenant of works. Didn't work out. All throughout this time period, there have been shadows. There have been types. There have been copies. There have been pointers. In film, we might call it foreshadowing of what was to come. Now, what do we call this covenant usually? We don't call it the covenant of grace. We call it something else. Well, the new covenant. It's the new covenant. Or, to use your biblical term, New Testament. The New Testament has been the only thing that ever saved anyone. But they didn't understand what was going on. This is why in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes the argument, why could Jesus pass over all these sins in the Old Testament? Remember his answer? It's because Jesus died on the cross. What's he say? And no, nobody ever got saved of anything other than by the propitiation, the propitiatory, yeah, try to say that word, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is going to later tell us that the blood sacrificed in these animals here never did anything. It did not remove sin. But did it have a purpose? It pointed. It was a sign. So we would say over here, the covenant of grace was revealed. And by that, this is formal lingo, so if you ever read some older books and you hear the old the covenant was revealed in the Old Testament, what we mean is pointers and shadows and types. There's images. There's this bright light over here, and there's shadows falling back over here. And we're seeing parts of the covenant of grace. We see them in the Abrahamic covenant. We see them in the Noahic covenant. We see them in the law. We see them in David's promises. We see them in every way God is working with his people, but they come to reality in the covenant of grace, and they're enacted, not here, but in the true place where there's a true tabernacle, a true throne, a true system, a true sacrificial location, and that's where? It's heaven. It's God's throne room, and Jesus does the new covenant work there that saved everyone in both directions. So how does this play into the argument of Hebrews? Jesus is better. Jesus is better than this system here because this system was only here to prepare you for Jesus. He's not belittling the system. It was good and glorious. This is how God did it. He saved people in Christ through the old covenant. This is why I say that Judaism without Christ did not exist until here. There's no such thing as Judaism without Christ until the New Testament. Because what's happening here? How's everybody getting saved? Through the blood of Christ. They don't know that. They're just obeying God under these shadows and copies of what was to come. 
But once the real thing gets here, you don't do the shadow anymore. You don't follow the copy anymore. You don't worry about the building where the, the symbolic sacrifice happened. You worry about the heavenly places where the Son of God literally sacrificed himself, literally gave his blood for our salvation and provided us not temporary redemption, but what is constantly called eternal redemption. So we've always been saved by the covenant of grace, but it's been progressively revealed until it came fully in Christ. So, four minutes after, we're not going to get to the better promises. That's a good section. We're going to talk about that next week. We have much better promises, which is this piece, and that's a big deal to Hebrews. All right, any questions? Before we wrap it up. To be continued. Hold on to that sheet. Do what? Why do? The, the promises are good. They are really good. And they're coming. There's still future either way. But you've got to be here. But you've got to be here in the shadow to have revealed the foretaste of what is to come. Yeah, something like that. So. All right, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray you bless the time we spend in your word. Let this be fruitful for us, um, edifying for us as we think about the glory of the covenant that we live under. That you have given us a covenant through Christ, but the stipulations are his righteousness, not our own. Grace, not our works. Just faith in the high priest that we have. God, I pray that you would help us to put our faith fully and firmly and consistently in Christ, that we could walk faithfully um, and obediently following Christ until we reach the glory on the other side. Father, I pray that you would bless in this way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.